Hello, I'm Rupert Sheldrake, and I'm here with Mark Vernon for another of our dialogues. Hi, Hello. Rupert. Hi, Mark. Um, just a word of introduction. We have these conversations uh, from time to time, and, and they're just conversations. We don't pre-prepare uh, them. Uh, we don't have fixed scripts. We talk about things that interest us. And what I've been thinking about recently and what I'd like to discuss today, Mark, um, is the topic of revelation. Now, in traditional studies of religions, where there's a distinction between uh, revealed religions and, and uh, say, rational religions or uh, other categories of religion. But revealed religions are ones where there's an element of what one could, I suppose, call channeling involved in the development of the religion. In the Old Testament, for example, there are all these prophets who speak with prophetic voices. Sometimes moral exhortations, um, sometimes actual prophecies in the normal sense of the word, you know, prophesying something in the future, like in the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, the book, and the book of the Revelation of St. John the Divine, um, the last book in the New Testament. Um, and there's a sense in which uh, re what they say is something that's coming through them. This is very clear in the book of Revelation of St. John the Divine. And a similar principle applies, of course, to the Quran. Um, Muhammad heard the voice dictating to him, uh, and then that became the Quran. It was channeled through him. Uh, it was revealed, as it were. Um, and there's been a general suspicion in rationalist circles for a long time about revealed religion. These are just things that people claim to have these visions. They claim to hear the voice of God, but why should, why should we believe them? And there's all sorts of people who think they're God and are channeling God. Um, I get emails from some of them, uh, you know, on a regular basis. Um, so uh, what's going on here? I think what makes this particularly um, relevant at the moment is that there are a lot of people now who are having direct mystical experiences, uh, part, sometimes through psychedelics, sometimes through meditation, sometimes through other spiritual practices. Um, and for anyone who's had one of these experiences, it seems to have the air of truth, the air of a kind of revelation, revealing something that was previously hidden. Um, and in fact, uh, when one sees it in that light and realizes that revelations happening all around us today and indeed in our own lives, um, then I, I think it, it's interesting to look again at the concept of revelation in religion. Um, because it's not as if we dismiss revelation nowadays. Lots of people have personal revelations and we're influenced by those who've had uh, experienced these things. I mean, for example, Tibetan teachers like the Dalai Lama, one feels uh, that he's speaking not just from books or studies or, or, or of texts about meditation, but from direct personal experience of these altered states of consciousness. Yeah, well, I, I like the sort of slightly demythologizing take there, if that's the way of putting it, the sense that rather than this be something that 
just lands on a page in front of some um, particular individual um, that it is actually maybe you can think of it on a kind of continuity almost and um, there are the more um, era defining even revelations where something becomes clear to people um, that utterly transforms consciousness I mean this is sometimes called the axial age around the time of the Buddha and Socrates and then of course you've got the the revelations that launch um, the great religions, notably Christianity and Islam. Um, but the sense that you bring to it that somehow revelation is actually about bringing all that we might be to a kind of edge or a horizon. Um, and at that edge, something much newer and maybe more expansive can be received that sort of connects with what we know so far but somehow because we are aware of the limits of what we know we are also able to be open to more than just what we knew before and um, i mean let me let me put it um this way i i once went to um i, I once did a course at the college of psychical studies here in london because i was very interested in how psychotherapy relates to um, psychic abilities and at the College of Psychical Studies they offer trainings that enable people who feel they have some kind of gift to um, develop it and it's partly an ethical developing how do you make this responsible because you're dealing with the lives of others and but it's also about how you um, rather than treating it just as a sort of miraculous gift that you don't understand at all you actually get to know your intuition how it works um, and this is partly about getting to know yourself. And my takeaway from it was that, um, that psychic abilities are actually quite closely related to the psychodynamic practice of listening to the transference and the counter and transference, trying to pay attention to, as it were, the energy in the room, what's going on at the edges of consciousness, as well as what is quite explicit and manifest. And what the, the course did was it helped me to gain a sense of almost with your inner awareness, moving to the edge of what you know, what you can be sure of, and kind of almost looking over that edge for images or thoughts um, that seem to come from not a dramatically different place, but appear from a different part of um, your awareness. And then working how to kind of, um, working out how to use those, how to interpret those, how to offer them to a person. Um, and so that felt to me like um, almost like a, um, a course in revelation. Um, and it's not um, uh, sort of, it's not perfect. It's not like um, a divine fiat. Um, and I, I really liked it for that as well, because there is this sense of having to engage with it, to try and understand, um, to offer it, to um, tease out and discern it. Um, but I wonder, it, it did give me a sense that, you know, say the gospel writers, in Christianity, you know, they were living in this extraordinary time where this extraordinary thing had happened and they were trying to make sense of it and trying to put together both what they'd heard and what they felt more implicitly might be being carried in what they'd heard. And I think that must have taken them to an edge of their awareness. And then through the practice of writing, in their case, um, that enabled them to produce these texts, which we now feel um, to be revealed because they do channel, as you say, so much more than what might have been immediately apparent. Yes, <clears throat> yes. Well, there, there, um, 
they do they do have that kind of channeled quality I mean it's less obviously so than in the Old Testament prophets but you know Jesus himself was interpreted by many people as a kind of prophet so it was as if he was channeling um, what he was experiencing and and some of his the description of his the revelation of his relationship to God the Father at, at his baptism you know when the 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 he has this sense of being in God's presence and then these sound the words the sound this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased well no one else heard that presumably this was Jesus relating it to um, his disciples afterwards or perhaps them reconstructing it um, but anyway this wasn't a kind of public event uh, it was uh, he was having an experience that was absolutely seminal to his own spiritual development so that would be a kind of revelation too um, so I think that these they go all through all religions actually but then there's the question of you know how do we distinguish between one and another um, I mean, the Upanishads, I imagine, in, in the Hindu scriptures, are about the nature of consciousness, which must have been revealed through the practice of meditation and through uh, direct conscious experiences, mystical experiences. But then there are other revelations, like the Book of Mormon, uh, dictated to Joseph Smith, um, which some of us would think of as rather bizarre. I mean, it's telling a kind of bizarre history, a bizarre story. A bizarre mythology um, um, and for Mormons that's a valid revelation from God for those of us who are not Mormons it's probably not um, so I suppose that at this stage then there's this problem of how do you sift one from the other and how do you distinguish between somebody who's purely delusional who thinks God is speaking to them um, and someone who's not yeah I mean I it's a big question because uh, there will be different revelations and even conflicting revelations. Um, I think there's something about um, the phrase uh, by the, by their fruits, you shall know them. Um, and William James said this as well. He said that um, this is the way to discern uh, what people experience as divine revelations is it's um, there is the experience itself, which can be very tremendous. Um, but it's a question of, of what happens next in a way that helps discern things. Um, and broadly speaking, um, a revelation can be discerned as carrying truth because um, it, it leads people to a more expanded life. Um, it leads to a greater sense of what's good, beautiful and true. Um, it brings a kind of freedom. Um, but the freedom that's not a kind of willful, selfish, egoistic freedom, um, a sort of powerful freedom in that way, but one that um, actually in a strange sort of way and fosters this channeling um, that, you know, when you see the Dalai Lama, um, he is both um, free, he feels as a sort of free individual and that's completely attractive and he's fully himself. Um, there's, a, there's a very powerful sense of a person before you. And yet, that person has become transparent something to something much greater than them. And so I think there's, there's a kind of cluster of, um, uh, of criteria almost that you can use to assess a revelation. I mean, I think another factor comes in for me because, um, you know, I'm very persuaded by this idea that 
human consciousness itself evolves, it shifts and changes. Um, and so different revelations can also be understood as relating to different times and places. You know, so I think I can feel that the Quran is revealed as well as the Bible is being revealed in the ways we're talking about because the Quran speaks to a particular time and place and culture now that's born out of it that feels to me like it has divine qualities. Whereas Christianity was born in a, in a different time and place and has given rise to a, a, the Christian expression of that. Um, and perhaps the sort of final piece just to put into that is that um, I think that the unity of revelations is actually seen in the way diverse revelations harmonize together. Um, so it's not they have to be all the same, but there's something about their spirit that when they are received and appreciated at this more sort of felt sense of what they produce, how they expand life, they can be seen actually to be very closely related and intertwining, um, you know, which is why the Dalai Lama can meet Desmond Tutu, um, the Buddhist can meet the Christian, and it's manifestly clear that at this deep level of life, they have something profound in common, even though they would speak in very different revealed terms. So I, I would try and use those kind of criteria. Yes, I think that's um, consistency and the, by their fruits, you shall know them. Um, yeah, I think those are actually really relevant because nowadays there's probably more people having revelations than ever before, thanks to psychedelics. Because there's no doubt that for many people, uh, psychedelics give this feeling of revelation, of seeing another realm of consciousness. I mean, particularly intense ones like DMT give people a sense of um, traveling to a completely other kind of conscious realm. And uh, psychedelics like LSD and, and magic mushrooms give the sense of seeing through the veil, seeing a, a new way of seeing things, which was previously masked, um, that it's seeing through or seeing to a new way of understanding reality. I think that by the fruits, you shall know them criterion is rather a good one, because there are quite a lot of people who take psychedelics who just seem to enjoy tripping. And um, it's not obvious that their lives are vastly improved in, in sense of service to others and to the world as a result of doing that. Um, uh, but I do think that this, the, you know, this is a pressing issue for a lot of people now. In fact, Rick Strassman, who is Jewish and who wrote the principal book on DMT, dimethyltryptamine, called The Spirit Molecule, um, uh, wrote a rather curious book recently called DMT in the Spirit of Prophecy, where he looks at the Jewish prophets in the Old Testament um, and the kind of states of mind from which they're speaking. Um, and he's not exactly suggesting they were all on DMT, uh, but he's suggesting that their altered states of consciousness are comparable to those that people can experience on uh, DMT. Um, and so uh, we now have this situation where uh, a lot of people are having these um, revelations. And um, there's also a way in which, through research on psychedelics, um, some kind of consensus can emerge about the 
experiences that people are having. There's a, a typology of these experiences. You can make maps of them. Benny Shannon, the, the um, professor of psychology at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, has written a book called Landscapes of the Mind, uh, mapping ayahuasca experiences, having studied many of his own and other people's. So there is, in a sense, a whole new project going on right now in psychedelic research of seeing what consistent features appear in these psychedelic revelations. Yeah, another thing which I would bring to that is that my sense from psychedelics is that it brings very powerful experiences and, as you say, kind of unveiling. But this, then the question of, in a way, what next? Almost so what? Um, and it's as much what the individual brings to the experience as the experience itself that really counts. Um, and I think that this, this, again, is quite a traditional viewpoint, actually. So, you know, you take someone like St. Paul, the conversion of St. Paul, you know, where he sees a blinding light from the sky and in the story falls off his horse and so on. Well, what's often forgotten is that he then goes to Arabia for three years and tries to work out what on earth this meant. Um, and that is about, I think, partly trying to understand something which was, in his case, literally blinding. Um, but it's also about calling for something in him so that he can begin to articulate and his humanity, his consciousness is itself changed rather than just it being seen as a kind of blast of some alternative consciousness. Um, I mean, I, I was thinking, I've actually just been reading recently um, Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh, which have been bestsellers for decades now, actually. I've never read them before. Um, mm. But um, these are books which are presented as if God is dictating to Neil Donald Walsh um, and in this kind of conversation. Um, but gradually as it unfolds, you realize it's not quite as straightforward as that, that he write a sentence and then he might write nothing for weeks on end and then another kind of sentence comes to him. So something is being shown to him and, and you know, they, it's quite a mixed bag, the various conversations, but at the heart, they ring true to me because they, they uh, resonate quite profoundly, particularly with Neoplatonic insights. Um, but nonetheless, um, he's still having to do quite a lot of work, even if that work is just a kind of patience as this thing is revealed to him. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, I don't know what, what you make of this, but I, I sort of feel there's a lot of excitement about psychedelics because um, it very powerfully shows people that, the material mechanical reality that many people assume is not the only reality. But that really then raises the huge question of what this actually then means for the individuals and then culturally. And I guess psychedelics, if you, I wonder if you told a history of psychedelics, there's been a kind of history of sort of stop starts where people's minds have been blasted, but then it's sort of come to not very much beyond saying, you know, that this, these trips mean something. Because I think that this extra thing is needed in Revelation, which is, you know, what, what, what you know, another way of putting it would be that we're called to be co-creators. Um, that's partly, I think, what it is to be human, to be not just conscious like other animals, but to have this kind of self-consciousness that seems, so far as we can tell at least, to be particularly intense with us. So it brings a particular kind of intelligence, a particular kind of resonance with the world around that no doubt complements other kinds of intelligence and resonance that are around and about. But I, I, I still want to, I still sense somehow that we humans have got a particular role to try to make that manifest. Um, 
I wouldn't say it's superior particularly, but it's, it has a certain kind of quality. And, and maybe part of the psychedelic experience is asking us now to think, what is that particular role? Not just, you know, we can have wonderful experiences. Yes, I agree. I, th I think that's um, definitely um, an area that needs a lot more exploring and, and, and integrating and thinking just what significance is it going to have? Because so far, uh, most people's experiences have been unstructured and kind of random. Um, but now there's more controlled settings in the scientific research on therapeutic uses of magic mushrooms and LSD and so on. So perhaps it'll be possible to work out more clearly what is going on and uh, see common patterns. And I think though that revelation can also occur in the intellectual realm, and I'm thinking here of scientific revelations. Like, So when Isaac Newton thought of the theory of gravitation, what he did was saw connections in a bigger pattern which people had not seen before. Everyone knew that apples fell from trees, Everyone knew that rain fell from the sky. There was something pulling things to the earth. Everyone knew that the moon influenced the tides. Um, there seemed to be an influence of the moon. On, 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 and by putting these things together, you know, the theory of universal gravitation, the earth attracts things, including the moon, but the moon also attracts things, including the water on the earth, creating the tides. And then coming up with this theory of universal gravitation, a theory that implied to the entire universe, seeing everything as interconnected with everything else, every movement of every massive object affecting everything else in the universe uh, in a way that was proportional to the product of the masses and inversely proportional to the distance between them. Um, this was an amazing vision that Newton had in which he was able to communicate and which did so much to establish um, science as we know it. But it presumably didn't come to Newton just through working out geometry on bits of paper. There must have been a moment of insight. And indeed, many scientists who've been asked about their insights talk about moments of insight. I've had them myself, you know, moments when like a flash, though you can see things differently. Um, so these two, I think, would count as kinds of revelation, and they'd fit quite well with your idea of co-creation, because you couldn't be Isaac Newton unless you'd already studied a great deal of geometry and astronomy and thought about planetary motions and tidal patterns and that kind of thing. Uh, you'd have to have the right preparation, and then you have to have the right ability to interpret this and write about it. And if he just had this vision um, and gone around looking sort of wild-eyed, um, it wouldn't have got very far. But the fact he was able to put it down with geometrical proofs in his book Principia Mathematica um, provided a foundation for science as we know it. Yeah, and I also wonder whether you need, there is a kind of sense of faith here that science needs as much as religion, because it's a faith somehow that reality can show itself in these deeper symmetries that then can be expressed mathematically or otherwise. I mean, I think too of um, um, Einstein, Albert Einstein, and in his biography of Einstein, um, Walter Isaacson asks a lot about the nature of Einstein's, well, he talks about imagination, but it, it's closely related to his revelatory, his capacity to receive revelations, I think. And, and, and one of the things which becomes very clear to Isaacson is that Einstein thought imagination 
is here for a purpose. It's not just kind of fanciful. It's not just a strange evolutionary byproduct that maybe had survival advantage at some point or other because it enabled social groups or something. No, he, he, Einstein was really clear that the imagination is to be taken very seriously because it will show us things if we follow it through. And famously with special relativity, he imagines what it's like to ride on a light beam. Um, and that gives him the moment of inspiration from which then the mathematics can start to coalesce around. Um, you know, and he's also well known for saying imagination traverses the world. And whereas knowledge is a word, just land little bits of insight, you might say. Um, so this sense that, um, that faith is involved, that, that um, although, I don't know, many scientists, you know this better than me, wouldn't put it this way, but that their intelligence can connect with a kind of deeper intelligence that's round and about. And if that's so, you know, we can communicate. So why wouldn't that intelligence communicate? Um, I think it does so in this way that invites us to step up, as it were, so that our consciousness expands too. It's not just like a, a robotic programming brain dump, as it were. That's not the nature of living reality at all. Um, but nonetheless, um, there's qualities of faith, I think, must be involved too, to take these um, insights seriously. Yes. Well, we're probably going to have to draw our discussion to a close because we're almost out of time. But I think that, uh, you know, just a whole, perhaps a whole other discussion would be that for many uh, mathematicians and mathematical physicists, um, uh, they do actually assume that there's a kind of Platonic or Pythagorean realm of mathematical forms, uh, a sort of ultimate mathematical truths or structures or patterns, um, which they discover, they don't think they invent, they think they discover things that in a sense already exist in a kind of transcendent mind, which is the platonic uh, kind of realm of ideas or forms. So there's a sense in which many mathematicians, not just Einstein, um, actually feel that these things have been revealed to them. And what's more, many of them, like Einstein, think very visually, they, they have mathematical landscapes, they, they don't sort of work it out on bits of paper with just equations like you see those pictures of mathematicians in front of blackboards with chalk. Uh, uh, for many of them, I think, like for Einstein, there is a kind of moment of vision when they actually see a new reality. Then, because they're mathematicians, they're able to translate it into mathematical notation, just like a composer hearing a new tune and then being able to write it down in musical notation. Um, so I think that there's probably a great deal of this going on uh, in science all the time, actually. Yeah, I, and I very much like the idea that you've got to have a kind of medium, almost, a kind of discipline to bring these manifestations, these, these revelations into manifest appearance. I mean, the, the, the comments uh, um, about discovery um, is, is, I've heard it, artists say this as well, that they, their creativity is actually their ability to have a kind of familiarity with some kind of material, whether it be paint or stone, whatever it might be, words even, um, and that that becomes the medium by which they discover what they're writing or crafting. Um, so yeah, that, that sense of being in contact with a wider reality, I think would be quite common in the arts as well. Um, and of course, in religions too. Very good. Well, uh, what an interesting topic. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Thank you.